I think we're on page 68. Life is not a thing. <laughs> Does everybody have the book or do we need to share the share it? Shannon, do you have uh, do you have the book? No, I don't. He spoke. Can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. Well, uh, Kim, can you share? All right. Thank you. Life is not a thing. We each have a view about life. Life is hopeless. Life is meaningless. Life is tough. Life is a drama. Life is a game and I can't win. I've never met anyone who doesn't have a point of view about it. Even if we can't articulate it or aren't conscious of it, our actions are guided, even dictated by our very strong idea of how life is. The reality is life isn't anything. You simply cannot make life into a thing. It has no duration and no space. It never stops. Life is change itself. Our general, our general philosophies about life flow right through our core beliefs. And we have our moods, which flavor these views. Some people have dramatic moods. Some people view themselves in life as, a dull, as dull things to plod through. To be anxious is a mood. Your true self couldn't possibly be anxious because it's not anything and not anything can't be anxious. But your condition, self, the one that we're really living through most of the time, can get anxious or be in a hurry. Ellen, you're muted. Thank you. We think of our moods as being influenced by our physical condition, by the weather, by lots of things, so it seems. Recently, I noticed a difference in my mood while in Hawaii compared to my mood in San Diego. I decided it was because of the weather, but the weather, at least at this time of year, is no different in Hawaii and San Diego. I don't view the San Diego air as soft and caressing. I view it as humid and I hate humidity. But as long as I was in Hawaii, the whole warm, damp air was just wonderful. I never minded it a bit. Boredom is another name for practice. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Everybody wait, wait, wait. Can we go back a second? Yeah. Back to Hawaii? <laughs> yeah. What I'm wondering is, oh, so she's talking about Life is this and not life is that. But I don't quite get this. She has a different mood. These are moods. Is that what she's trying to say? Yeah. Our view of life? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't think it's deep. No, it's not. Okay. Or I don't think it's deep. Boredom is another name for practice. This one's going to be controversial. <laughs> mm -hmm. Everyone who sits, everyone who sits, gets bored after a little while. You can't look at your watch. Twenty minutes can feel like a lifetime. 
Look closely at the boredom. For me, my core belief is always feeling that life is kind of a disaster. It's always hoping that something, in this case Zen practice, will make me feel good. It's going to fix me. We get bored of really saying, nothing is getting fixed here. This is just kind of dull stuff. I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not getting that thing I'm hoping for. Am I next? Uh, yes. Okay, we expect a lot from external things. Think about romantic love. We often start with such high hopes. <clears throat> this person is going to complete me. This person will make everything better. Then we're bored or disappointed when the other person doesn't do that for us. We will attach our desire to anything. We can attach it to having the Padres win the baseball game <coughs> if we're a Padres fan. We can attach it <coughs> to having the Republicans win an election if we're a Republican. We're always looking for something that momentarily fills us up. So it's fortunate that we're not baseball fans because I think this is an important game in the World Series tonight. Yeah, how are the, okay, we'll talk about the game later. <laughs> We're sitting pretty quickly, you will stop to again. realize. Right, it's me, right? No. no, I can hear you. No, I can hear her. Oh, okay. We're sitting pretty quickly, you start to realize it doesn't complete uh, it doesn't complete you. You're just sitting there and it hurts. Inevitably the mind that is always trying to figure out to figure things out. It thinks this is pretty stupid to just sit here. It's hot. My legs hot. I thought Zen was supposed to be on about joy and wonder. You can be bored if you want, but it's interesting to see if you can notice your boredom and also feel the fear at the base of it. That fear arises because, once again, something outside of you isn't fixing anything. Boredom is another form of desire. I want it to be different. I want it to be other than it is. I want it not to hurt. I want it not to be so hot. I want. We think we need something that we don't have and don't feel we are, so we experience it as want. With boredom, it's often, I don't want to feel this pain, so I want something to distract me. I want something to entertain me. My turn. Mm -hmm. To really surrender, surrender to pain and to be friendly with it, to embrace it, is probably not what we thought this practice was about. We thought it was about becoming enlightened, but enlightenment is not something tremendous, tremendous state of being. It is simply being with what it is, what it is. That's kind of, it sounds like enlightenment it is, would be a similar thing to um, this romantic love that she was talking about, that mm. then we would be complete, then we would be happy. Yeah, interesting uh, comparison. When you're sitting in pain or boredom, you go right to thinking, I really hate this. I really do hate this. We can notice the thinking without getting stuck in it. And if we can stay unattached to the thinking and just experience the pain or boredom, something bigger begins to surround it. We can't experience the wholeness of life, the sacredness, without including everything. 
and everything includes the boredom and the pain. You can be thankful when your boredom comes around because boredom comes because it means you have space to experience what's underneath it. And don't you think we do a lot of things so that we aren't bored? You know, we we fill our life with problems and we activity and so forth. But then there are people like I've definitely heard people say that you know like boredom is a symptom of uh, like a lazy mind or like you know if you were you know really engaged you would never get bored and and like that is always that's not that's an interpretation of boredom that has never quite sat right with me um, but yeah like. There are this, we, we do often like do, uh, like lose ourselves in busyness to distract ourselves. And then there are also who like, there's definitely a rhetoric of like, boredom is like a vice <laughs> or a, a sin, like a low level sin. Cody. To the extent you realize that you will begin to be willing to experience everything. If you want what you really want, that gets clearer and clearer. This doesn't mean you like to sit in pain or with the dullness or with the heat. But then there's something that develops in you when you keep sitting. There's the steadiness. And the longer you sit, the more that steadiness takes charge. And that's not useless. Anyone who goes through life, particularly you, as you get older, faces increasing chance of accident, illness, and stress. You can't escape these things. But if you have a practice, it's different than not having a practice. I don't want to put, on, put some ideal out there. That's not what I'm saying. I run for the aspirin as quickly as anybody else. But there is something that develops from sitting. Discipline. Mm -hmm. And now it'll spread to the rest of your life also and everything you do. Anticipating life. Before we sit, we have a mood, a feeling about what, what it's going to be like. In fact, it's like that with everything. We often, uh, we're often feeling something in advance of the situation actually happening. This keeps us from being aware or noticing the situation we're in at this moment. When we go into an environment with other people, we're often nervous or edgy. We want to be impressive in some way. So we start figuring out what to say or what tale to tell. That's understandable. You're going to a gathering and you have to talk about something. There's nothing wrong with that, except it distracts us from how we really feel at that time. We may feel a little bit uneasy. We might be worried that the other people won't be impressed with us and we'll be stuck with our own painful feelings. All these feelings about the situation arise and we haven't even reached the front door. We spend our life doing this. Yeah, it's like we, uh, we've gone to the party and come home before we even get there. <laughs> Most of our life is lived in this space of, in this space in our mind. We aren't experiencing. We're being pushed by the core belief into moods and opinions. We're busy with a whole world of anticipatory thoughts and feelings before the door ever opens. 
Say you're going to meet a new person later in the day. That person is kind of important. You may spend a whole morning figuring out your approach to that person. Maybe you comb your hair differently or you rehearse what you're going to say. Your whole morning is taken up with this and the meeting hasn't even happened yet. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to get dressed. You do. You can even get dressed up. But your mind is taken up with thinking about what's going to happen before the contact even takes place. Uh, Kim. This anticipation happens with practice itself. After a few years of practice, a lot of people tell me, I'm getting an awful, awful lot out of this practice, but it wasn't at all what I expected. That just happens. Our experiences, when we're actually experiencing them, have <laughs> very little to do with our anticipation. This doesn't mean we shouldn't have aspiration. Aspiration gives us diligence and discipline. It's different than ambition, which is about trying to get somewhere. Ambition is motivated by our core belief that there's something wrong with us that can be fixed if we can get to a certain place. Ambition said, I will open the door and I know what's on the other side and I will take it. Aspiration is more like when the door opens, I will be there. Weakening the core belief. Now our true self doesn't know anything about ambition or anticipating life. It does not become busy with thinking, waiting, measuring or worrying. Our true self is just perceiving second by second. It's just being itself and responding to whatever happens to be there. When that millisecond of response is over, it's over. We won't ever be able to completely, without thought or anticipation. No, I'm sorry, I screwed up. Okay, we won't ever be able to be completely without thought or anticipation, but if we sit regularly, Bored or not, it weakens this ego process. It weakens our attachment to our core belief, and at the base, it's the core belief telling us what life should be like, instead of allowing us the space to experience life as it is. When we weaken that attachment to our belief on how things are, we should throw back, thrown back into our actual experience. If we're thrown back into the to it direct, directly, then that's the passageway, the gateway to our true self. This is the most rewarding thing we can do. It is a very edgy life. We may sometimes get a response we like, but you cannot count on it. There is no way to count on that. There is no settleness or security in a life of practice. You don't know what's coming, but don't worry. Your true self can't worry about things about anything. It's not capable of doing that. To see what upsets you is to see it through your core belief. Everything we do and see, we immediately label with our perception, like or dislike. Go right ahead and label. It doesn't matter. But this is the work. Noticing the feeling or thought, becoming aware of the core belief animating it, and then being with whatever arises without response or reaction. Practice isn't about liking practice or not liking practice, liking the weather or not liking the weather. It doesn't matter. 
The weather is what it is. Our sitting is what it is. Our liking or disliking of it doesn't make any difference. Only the practice matters. Your practice is the conduit. Some people think when I talk about a core belief, I'm talking about something psychological rather than real Zen. But if we have a picture of what the real Zen is like, how is that different from a picture of boredom? Zen is a life that eventually has a transforming element to it. Trying to push, trying to push to find your true self doesn't work. You can't do that. You can't resolve to be good or to be your true self. That's just another system. It doesn't work. The idea of the core belief is in the mind. But when you get back to the actual experiencing of that pain with no naming of it, you get out of the dual nature of thinking. There's no subject and object. You're just being. If you say, I'm going to feel my anger, that's not feeling your anger. That's talking about it. But if we experience our anger, we have to give up our core belief for a moment and just settle into the pain of it. And if we can stay in this non-dualistic experiencing, even for a few seconds, it will slowly begin to transform us. Over time, we develop our ability to rest in that non-dualistic experiencing for more than two or three seconds. We don't wanna do that. Our core belief is very dear to us. Until we know our true self, that's who we think we are. We have no intention of giving it up, not at all. That's why practice is not easy. The pain becomes your true teacher. Out of this teaching, you slowly see yourself and the rest of your life in a very different light. It's not ever complete, but you can be there more and more. When you can, even briefly, experience your pain instead of thinking about it, it changes you. That non-dual state is where you can experience your true self. Your true self is peace and freedom. It's always compassionate. It's incapable of judgment. This true self can manifest more and more over the years. Your practice is the conduit. The conduit. This is true Zen. That's it. So I've been curious about something we, that we read in Suzuki Roshi about ego and personality. Can I read this one paragraph? And I'm wondering if you think personality is the same as, as true self rather than ego. And so he talks about one um, period in Japan where the calligraphy was really good. <coughs> and then he talks about the Fujiwara period. Um, what followed was not so good. According to my visitor, some of the latest calligraphy was too formal and shows too much of the artist's ego. We cannot see any personality in their calligraphy. The personality we see in art should be well-trained without much ego in it. I think you can understand the difference between personality and ego. Ego is something that covers your good personality. <coughs> so I'm wondering if, if personality that Suzuki Roshi is saying is the same thing as her true self. <coughs> Everyone has character, but if you don't train yourself, and this is what Shannon said about discipline, your character is covered by ego. You cannot appreciate your personality. So what do you think? Seems like there's a lot of judgment here. And as you can see, your true state is not judgmental. 
Well, you mean Suzuki Roshi's doing judgment? What we were reading before. He says oh. the true, you know, self is peace, freedom, and is always compassionate and is incapable of judgment. And basically looks like he's judging when he's judging, you know, calligraphy. So what's the difference between judgment and discernment? Because we need discernment to be able to actually like see walk through all through. these layers of our conditioning. Or you know? walk through a room. Yeah. So so and if one were if I were to go into the other room and pull out my thesaurus, I I'm willing to bet that if I looked up judgment or discernment, like they'd be listed as synonyms for each. So how are we because you know I've and I think maybe it's in the six perfections I've been reading about discernment. Maybe I'm confusing that with another book. Um, um, but how do we tease out that 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 line between what is judgmental and what is discerning? And there's a, a thing in the in the Sinjin Ming about not having beliefs. You know, it, what is that about? Yeah. Can you it's really operate without having them? beliefs? It's it's not having preferences. Well, no, later on there's a thing about beliefs. Oh really? I don't remember, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. It's it's hard to mix and, and not being attached to preferences. Yeah. Go on. I was just saying it's it's hard it's hard to mix text. I mean, you're we're you're talking about Suzuki Roshi might use the term ego very differently from from Joko Beck, even though I I know they were connected. I think I think what Suzuki Roshi is saying is that we have a natural personality and disposition, and when we reify that and try and put our identity into our work, our art, or anything else. And we start to varnish over our natural, our sort of natural personality. I think by ego, he's using he's using it in the very Western sense of uh, an identity of me, which I need to display to the world, which is unique to me and my person. Versus, which is a real weirdly Western way to for for him to use the word. He's using it the way you and I would use it if we were walking down the street. Um, but I think that. Um, that does that make sense kim yeah yeah i see um someone with a big ego like when they're in a room with other people everything in their mind centers around them like in this program i was watching uh, everyone was um on a train car and they there was an accident they were told they couldn't leave the train car and this guy said what do you mean we can't leave? I have a meeting in 20 minutes. It was like, you know, the only thing he was thinking about was himself and not the fact that he would infect the world with this bird flu or something. So, um, yeah, but Glenn, do you see the true self and ego? I mean, and personality might be similar. I, I think that personality might be a natural expression of the truth of true self. I'm really not going to define true self. I think it's perilous. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but I think I understand what Suzuki Roshi is saying in that a photographer, if one of your students uh, came to you with photography, a photograph, and it was obviously about 
what a, and 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 the theme and style of the photographs was to reflect what an important uh, what a great photographer the student was versus a student who just came to you with something quirky or beautiful or had mm -hmm. captured some bizarre moment in the world, you would certainly say, you would certainly reward the latter, right? You would say, that's photography. That's not your own, e versus the first one who would be like, that's your own ego. Would that work? Uh, yeah, pretty much, I think. Um... So anyway, I, I've been trying um, last few days to make egoless art, if that's possible. <laughs> awesome. But not, but not personalityless art. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think, I really doubt that, yeah. Yeah. I think you're all going to be reincarnated as foxes. But... Foxes? for thinking so much, which would be bad for me because my dog chases the fox all day every time she crosses the yard. Oh, well, at least we're entertaining someone. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to be a fox. Who's next? Uh, who read last? Uh, I think that was Kim. So I think Nancy's up. Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, okay. A war, a war within. All human beings are at war with themselves. You may meet people on day long who are smiling and seem self-assured. Just me, the wars are there. Now clearly we see these wars. And whether seeing them has any effect on our life is another matter. For most of us, the war is not even conscious. So we have the usual human predicament. Not everyone is interested in the war. Some people will go to their graves seemingly imperfect to it. But if you're interested, the war is where the practice is. You step into the war and do battle. Isn't it funny how, how uh, you know, that's our biggest war, not other people, but ourselves? Mm -hmm. Totally. The war is between the way we think we should be and who we are. We are all caught in the feeling that we should be some other way. Perhaps we think we should be kind, patient, forgiving, long-suffering, charitable, and compassionate. It's awful. I'm not saying the qualities themselves are awful, but to hold these qualities up to ourselves as the way we should be is about the worst way of ever getting to look like that. Maybe we're none of these things, or at least not very many of these things, and then we feel guilty and have to hide it. The war is between wanting pleasure or ease or success and being with the truth that life doesn't care about our pleasure or ease or success. It will be the way it is. Perhaps we know this intellectually, but we feel we should be more okay with it. I should accept this. I should do it. I should be a good person. I should be unselfish. How are we really just the way we are? Shannon? Being just the way we are enables us to transform if we can really see it and experience it. Whenever you're upset, annoyed, irritated, or moody, the war is on. The question is to ask yourself that is, how is this supposed to be? 
and how is it really? Because we believe we are a certain way and the world is a certain way, we are therefore compelled to act a certain way. This is the world in our mind. The world that creates nothing but havoc for ourselves and others. We can go to our de deaths clinging to the world. We say we don't want to cling to it, but we're terrified not to have it. Yet something within us, because we have that capacity, is always there. Doesn't want to keep us living this way. That's one side of practice. The other side of practice is just being the witness, the observer, really seeing everything, every thought you have, not judging it, not analyzing it, not doing anything with it, just seeing, 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 seeing. And as that seeing deepens, it captures not just thoughts, but the body sensations that arise with those thoughts. Here is where you begin to know your body, to know the shades of emotion running through it from morning till night. It's a cool, cold practice, meticulous and precise. This side of practice takes diligence. I'm sorry to tell you, it's no easier than practicing with our core belief. It can take years of practice and patience. Being aware and labeling our thoughts day after day after day after day. Noticing what's happening in, in the body moment after moment. Sitting is relaxing eventually, but for many years, it can also be a lot of hard work. We don't necessarily get immediate satisfaction. You get your true life eventually if you stick with it. But because we have so much pain, most of us would rather choose immediate pleasure than our true life. We want life to pleasure us right now. To please so us. One please. side of practice examines our core. Oh, please us, yeah. Please us right now. So one side of practice examines our core belief, which will pull your sense of your life apart. And the other side of practice is careful, meticulous work. Both don't seem that fun. So why do we practice? Because our true self is there, yearning for, for the freedom and spaciousness that is our true life. When I don't practice, I feel that yearning. So I always go back if I miss a day. <laughs> Staying with the myth. If you want your life to truly transform, you do this by just staying with the mess. You stay in it. A lot of practice is just sheer persistence and patience with the confusion. And if you are patient, it's as if the it's as if in the midst of being in this messy room of your life, you notice you've left the window open, and in comes a little bird of wisdom. It won't stay long at first. Maybe it just appears at the window, chirps, and flies away. But if you stay still and patient, it returns. If you're hospitable, it might even come and live with you once in a while for a week or so. And you get a different look at your life. How is it supposed to be? Our hope is that we, if we run our lives according to our core belief, it will lead to pleasure. It will lead to satisfaction. It will lead to the life we've always wanted. 
Then somebody tells you to do this other kind of stuff. Really watch, observe, feel. We don't want to do that. We've got to get back out there in the buzz of thinking, the endless swarm of thoughts. We don't want to observe those thoughts. We don't want to feel the tensions of the body as we play with them. If you stay with your practice, slowly but surely, you begin to see what you're really doing as opposed to what you think you're doing. How is it really? The struggle isn't pointless. The struggle is, in fact, absolutely important. Uh, Kim? Old Buddhist texts talk about having your head in the fire. There has to be struggle in practice. Without the struggle, the slow learning doesn't begin to, <coughs> to emerge. That fire refines you as you stay with it. Most of us need at least a little support, somewhere, a little help. That's why I recommend you find a teacher, a partner, <coughs> a community to practice with. It takes a lot of work to stay with this nasty struggle. It can take a lifetime. She's not a good salesperson, is she? <laughs> and yet, yet, you know, her books are some of the most sold books on Buddhism. Are they really? Uh, one of the first two, yeah. The good news is that still struggling changes the way you see yourself. This, the struggle itself changes. It doesn't require as much effort. In this war between the way we think things should be and the way they really are, there are moments of truth. The two sides come together for coffee and cookies <laughs> and enjoy themselves just fine. With practice, we don't win the war, but we have moments of peace. Then, when the truth is over, we may go back into battle, but we can enjoy ourselves for a little bit, and these little bits get longer and longer. We may trust practice, but we value the life that comes out of it. We begin to stop battling and instead experience the freshness of seeing in a much more honest way. A life of practice is the most rewarding, the most exciting, and the most alive thing you can do, but it's no piece of cake. It's ice cream. <laughs> well, what do you think, Glenn? Should we write now? Uh, I'm with the group, but sure. Um, do we have a uh, do we have a prompt? What do you think, Shannon? Ready for me to read? No, no, a prompt, a prompt for our writing. Oh. We like to pick out a prompt. Uh, your choice. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd go for head in the fire, but uh, I don't know if that's, um, I think staying with the mess is, is that is the perfect prompt. Okay. Um, you know, staying with the mess, staying with ourselves, even when we don't want to be with ourselves. And maybe what are the things we use to take ourselves away from, from ourselves, from staying with our, the hot mess that we are? Is that a good prompt? Yeah. Yeah, sounds great. 10 minutes? Okay, till, till yeah. 8 o'clock. Sounds good to me, but I think I'm going to call it quits and go to bed. Oh, okay. You've had a long week, ma'am. 
<laughs> well, also, she's got a different time zone. I'm in a different That's true. time zone, too. And also, she wants to know, uh, watch the World Series. Uh, <laughs> well, I want the Astros to win. It's not, on t it's not on TV, is it? What is TV? Uh, it, 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 it surely must be. I mean, I think you need special TV or something. Okay. I think it's just on cable. Like, Ted Turner used to let, I like Ted Turner wouldn't like give up the profits of the World Series to let it just go to streaming. Yeah, you got to be able to see it somewhere. Okay, good night. Good night, Ellen. Uh, Kim, could you clarify again the question? Yes. Please. Oh, Glenn, Glenn. Um, the, the prompt. So, Shannon, we usually have a prompt, but you can ignore it. It's just a place to kind of start writing and start thinking about. And the prompt was staying with the mess um, and the things we do to distract ourselves from, from staying with ourselves, from staying with our mess. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Thanks for asking, Shannon. That, yeah, that yeah, helps me right. too. All right. See y'all at eight. Eight o'clock. Okay. Thank you. You could mute. Kim, I was totally consumed with the ego versus personality theme of that you introduced. Sorry, I said and, and, and. Um, what do you think of Picasso? You know, he had a really big personality. I mean, a little, really big ego. But yes. in his work, do you think it's personality or ego in his work? Well, go on. What, what did you think? You can forget Picasso. He's dead. Um, yeah, so I was, I was, uh, so first I, I picked my primary avoidance, uh, the thing I try to avoid the most, which is just anxiety. Um, and then I made a long list of things that I do to avoid that anxiety, which I'm not going to go into here, but then I started to see how many of them also have kind of an upside and how many of those avoidance strategies have a, are also could be just parts of a natural person, natural personality trait. And if I take my ego out of it, myself out of it, it just bubbles up as like a natural action. So uh, this isn't making a lot of sense. So, so fixing things, seeking out high stakes, conflict, problems in the society and trying to 
you know, launch my efforts at them. That's a huge avoidance, infinite drama, huge avoidance, great idea. You know, what are you, what are you avoiding? Anxiety was the one I picked as my primary avoidance. Like I'm sure there are other th there are many other things, but that's probably the one that I avoid the most. You were doing a lot of that, and now you're doing something different, right? Yes, that I am. But but so that that was so that was my that was the one I picked, and then I made a list of it. But then I got I got really sucked in on this idea of um, ego versus personality, and doing things just spontaneously and naturally and maybe doing the same things that I was doing here it is home stretch maybe doing the same things that I was doing um like literally right putting on the same pair of pants as it were but being able to do those things just joyfully and gently as a person as something a part of my personality rather than and settling into them and being present with it including the anxiety um versus using them as tools to cover up or to separate myself or to keep myself busy or to fill the void as it were. That's it. That's a, it was a pretty, it was not, a, it was, this is not a coherent thought, but that's uh, I just wanted to tell you that I had definitely the ego versus personality uh, theme had definitely um, informed or complicated my, uh, my writing this evening. That's all. Yeah. I, I was into the, uh, how much energy we wasted all this. Oh, God. I mean, I could read mine, but how about other people? I'll go. I'll put, uh, for me personally, <clears throat> And, and I like like to touch on uh, what Glenn says uh, with anxiety. So I, I wrote a. <clears throat> I think that one thing that is a must for me is to recognize the moment where I have to pull myself back in. A lot of the times, my mind is so cloudy that I can easily forget some really simple things. And it really gets frustrating. For example, I can go downstairs with the intentions of getting a drink of water. Next thing you know, I'm down there doing everything but drinking water. So I just kind of pause and close my eyes and take a deep breath, regain my focus. And it's, it's sort of like a quick, quick meditation, you know, with the exception I'm not sitting, but... Um, that, that that that's like one of the things that caused me a lot of anxiety and I don't really know how to articulate it you know like uh like you know like how you put it but it's uh it was actually hard for me to talk about uh for a long time but uh it, you know I'm I'm kind of uh basically you know getting that focus and um Channeling, channeling it, you know, certain, doing certain things to channel it. To channel what? Uh, What's to, it? Get, to, to get away from that, you know. So, like, if I pause, because it's, it's like, say, like, all day long, you know, uh, 
like I'm doing school with my kids during the daytime from like say eight thirty to about three, and and you know by the time you're done with all of that, and then have to cook dinner and whatever else you have to do, it's just like the mind is everywhere, and so the, the one thing that I do is you know just kind of take a step back before I get to the point where I'm uh like annoyed or irritated or you know and just you know just take a deep breath and and it, and it, it really helps uh to kind of ease that tension i guess you could say Cody are you talking about stress <laughs> It might be stress <laughs> And I, you know, I, I, I call it anxiety. It, it might be stress too. Uh, but it's kind of like tapes. It sir. might be a little, isn't it, Coney? Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Tapes that you run through your mind over and over again, like from the past. You do a lot of that. Yeah, I do. Um, I do, and it's that's that's one thing that's kind of hard to. Uh, get over i guess you could say well some things you can't get over but uh uh i guess you know kind of move beyond that I, I don't i don't know i don't really know how to how to put that in you know proper perspective uh, but yeah it's, it's like like to me with sitting though um it helps acknowledge it you know and uh i don't really uh dwell on it more because because it, it it used to drive me crazy like just when all this stuff play over and over and over again and um i don't know i don't know i don't know how to explain this it's it's not really confusing but it's just hard to explain Allison, you look like you want to say something. You're muted. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I um, I'm mostly like um, I'm I'm just sort of fascinated by like her concept of um, of boredom and how you know we're, when we were talking earlier, I talked about how you know there are people who are like, oh, if you're bored, there's something wrong with you. There's so much life to live. Like, go do something. And um, you know. I was really intrigued by the, the, the way that she construes boredom is like, no, there's not anything wrong with you if you're bored. In fact, it's an opportunity and it's not an opportunity to like get up and go run around and do more things, but it is actually an opportunity to like really witness whatever is, is underneath that boredom. And, um, so I thought that was fascinating. And I, you know, I know of a couple of uh, poetry people. I can't, I can't name anyone specific. Like I can't remember who said these things um, specifically, but you know, there are some, some poets who really say boredom is just sort of an essential part of the creative process. It's like a time of letting your brain lie fallow. And um, so it was, it was just interesting to me that like the different, I was exploring the different approaches to, to boredom and how it, it could be an opportunity or perhaps even an, a necessity in one's creative or spiritual practice. Yeah, I don't think kids are, are 
uh, getting bored as much anymore. You know, it's not too good. Well, like, but I was raised like, don't say you're bored because if you're bored, then you have to go clean your room. <laughs> uh, well, they were just yesterday. I was at a, a dinner with kids, and they were all glued to their, yeah, uh, uh, you know, phones, their phones, phones and iPads and stuff. Yeah. But if they were bored, then they'd think, you know, what interesting thing could we do now? Yeah. But they never got to that point. In fact, the mother had to take away the phone so the kid would eat. She was a psychologist, too. Oh, boy. How about Nancy outside? Sound like my kids. Oh, you don't want to hear my rambling thoughts and all the places they went on this. I'm confused. It seems to contradict what we said last week. So I'm going to do you all a favor and not burden you. <laughs> How does it contradict? Well, last week we are talking about anger. And I was remarking on the difference between, I think it was Gail and you, Allison, the way you brought your anger to a meditation. And that was my opposite the experience from me and I remember you saying Glenn well sometimes it's just sitting there and letting things develop whereas this week she seems to be talking about you have to identify something and go after it with a vengeance and do the struggle pursue the mess and and I'm just confused about the difference between those two she's saying you have to go after it with a vengeance i mean i think i think she's saying there's a struggle but just like with anger you've just sort of got to sit in the struggle like the struggle is just going to happen and you just you have to just say all right i'm in the struggle now but you don't go into meditation with a struggle in mind well, you walk into the room with a struggle. I mean, we're all struggling right now, you know, in so many things. Here, I'm going to read mine. Mine's about a struggle. It is a mess. It is not a bunch. If not a bunch of dishes piled in the sink, the world on CNN 25 feet away. And what about my mess? Wondering if my art has too much ego and wondering if my achy back will get better and wondering if all is okay. How much energy I waste as I envision the whole world to be a mess where there is two options. One, that it is not a mess or two, I guess I meant thinking that it is not a mess or two, even better, that it is just what it is with no judgment necessary. What does the judgment accomplish anyway, but a great waste of energy? I think we're all kind of feeling that, isn't it? That we're wasting a lot of energy yeah. Most you of know, the, yeah. either improving ourselves or improving the world, but worrying about the world. What did you say, Shannon? Was that you? Yeah. Most of these are like mindful ex exercises for us just to develop this mindfulness of this play of life. And as we watch it, it just dissipates anxiety, anger, whatever it is. 
This is our Zen watchfulness meditation in daily life. And it just becomes one with the flow with our body and our life. And we have to watch it rather than get taken in by it. Never be taken in by it. Watch it. It's like like a movie. Just play in front of you. And you're just watching it. You're you're almost like laughing at it. It's like, wow, what a funny anger that I developed. So Shannon, you have a tremendous amount of insight. What's your Zen practice been? Where have you, where do you live? I'm here in Austin. I'm here in Austin. And where, where have you practiced? Uh, um, I've read about a dozen books on Zen itself, but that was a long time ago. That was like 20 years ago. And I thought it'd be very interesting to enjoy, you know, refreshing my mind with you guys. Oh, well, I'm glad you're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So have you ever practiced with a Sangha in a no, I have know, not. community? I say no, I have not. That would be nice. <laughs> you certainly seem to have gotten a lot from what you've read. Yes, I've read all the religions and I think they're all beautiful, every one of them. And they're all something to be taken from them all. So I mix them all together <laughs> and take yeah, it. I had, I had a great uncle who was a rabbi, and basically he gave that up. And one of the big reasons was that he found that um, all the religions basically were the same. Mm-hmm. And Agreed. that, you know, he didn't want to favor one over the other. Mm-hmm. After you take away the judgment from all of them, they pretty much are the same. So that's what you do. You take the judgment away. Yeah. How about you? Inside Nancy. Oh, what I know is about boredom. I, every day I have a long schedule of what I'm doing because um, I really afraid to feel, to being bored. So every time I feel bored immediately, I pick something to do. I do like read read something or like go out for a walk or like exercise or like working on my paper or like like uh, like almost like I'm I try to find something to avoid the feeling. Like even when I uh, when I was a child, yeah at that time I did not have anything like game or like iPad to play with. So I create I created something to play by myself or like <laughs> I went outside and then played with other kids. But actually I think for kids that's right in the sense that we can create more stuff that uh, is helpful instead of like not with technology nowadays, uh, with games and stuff, but uh, something like that. However, um, when I couldn't find a way to like get rid of the the feeling, uh, the bottom, and I just just sit with it. It's like boiling potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> really, after a while, it this uh, like a great feeling come, but most of the time I cannot like wait until that time because <laughs> yeah. So that's what I have. <laughs> Uh, Nancy uh, Lynch, I, uh, I'm really thinking about what you just said, and it really, um, that really 
spun my wheels, which are spinning pretty hard tonight. And I apologize. Um, I think the, I think the struggle is to, I think the struggle is to, to keep, to keep that space open and, and make a place for it every day in your life where you're, you're doing, you're, you're sitting, you're letting things bubble up. And the struggle is to not turn for me in meditation. The struggle is even when I'm sitting on the cushion and something bubbles up, I'm like, I don't want to think about that. I'll think about something else. And then I'm off to the races yelling at Donald Trump or whatever. But the struggle for me is to stay with that and to force myself to just watch whatever's coming up, come up and just let it rise without judging about it or thinking about it. And that's really hard. I mean, super hard. It's the hardest thing in the world. And then not creating a story about it. There it is. Just let it bubble up and be like, oh, here's this thing. Okay. Wow. Just here it is. And that that's really hard to do. So that's the struggle is just to let those things arise because they're arising in the world and in ourselves and not, not reify them or grab them or fight them or, or turn away from them. So, so we're not, we're not letting them go. We're staying with them. We're staying on it. We're staying, we're staying with it, but we're not putting a framework around it. We're not judging it. We're not, we're not letting it spin off into narrative and story. And that's to me, the struggle. I, I don't see the country. I just, so, so for me, the two chapters complement each other. This is guess what the, and so thank you for bringing that up. But, but I think for me, the two, the two positions are almost the same thing. The struggle is like not to struggle is to become non-struggling. That's what we were saying last week. And thank you, Glenn, right. for, for reiterating that. Um, but it seems to me there's two kinds of meditation then. You can bring a problem to the meditation. And she said something about uh, go into the pain. Or you can just sit there and, and let it come to you. Is that possible? Yeah. Uh, either way. Thank you. Now I'm thinking about the dishes in the sink because that's kind of my next thing. But, you know, just approaching them like, well, there's dishes in the sink. I mean, and not put any story to that. Like, oh, I should have uh, cleaned things as I was, you know, eating today or something. So many stories I could make up about that. Yeah, talk to you about no, I'm just thinking it may be that my wife already cleaned them. Yeah. <laughs> or the story, how much you enjoy cleaning dishes. Yeah. Yeah, talking about cleaning dishes. Um, last time I cut myself while washing dishes. Oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, the class I told you. No. Yeah, because I, I thought of something else and completely forgot what I'm doing at that time and I dropped the class and I just picked it up at the like, shopping edge and the scar still on my finger. Mm. So every time I touch it, I just remind myself when I wash it, it's need to be really meditated. <laughs> like, focusing on just like washing dishes, nothing yeah. else. 
we're such idiots, aren't we? <laughs> well, yeah, not being a good friend with ourselves, Barring Buddhist not paying attention, not being here, all simple stuff. You know, like Nancy does really hard stuff, but most of life is just so simple. Who, who was the, who's the guy in the Christian parable who wrestled with the angel all night? Which one? Was in, which, who? Does anyone remember that one? Jacob? David? Is it David? No. Allison's going to Google it. Yeah. Uh, it hits the name like with an S or something. Uh -huh. Jacob. Uh, Jacob? Yeah. Jacob, I think it was Jacob. Yes. What was the point of that? I don't know. I'm not really familiar with uh, the Bible. I mean, you should have just, you know, I don't know. Just be like, you want some tea? Otherwise, no, we're not going, you know, we're not going there. Just, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Sorry. There's wrestling versus letting it arise and staying with it. Yeah. It's different. Okay, well, I think I'm going to go and deal with the dishes. <laughs> I think that's part of the, the problem for me tonight is her talking about the war and the struggle. And um, that, that seems to be not sitting well with me. Because why? Can you say more? Yeah. It doesn't seem like a war to me. Well, it seems like an exploration or a. Well, that seems ideal. Yes, ideal. I, I like yours better. I like your yours better. I mean, Peg, <laughs> Peg talks about gentle curiosity. I've never heard Peg talk about a war, a struggle. Mm. It's the bodhicitta, the, the desire to know more. But sometimes there is a war, and then you want to change it to just a simple dishes in the sink. You know, the war is partially created in our mind, isn't it? That we're seeing this situation oh, as a war. I went crazy waiting for someone, you know, half the day to respond to an email. <laughs> and then I realized this was all my, my problem something I created. There was no reason why this person needed to respond instantly. They could have been taking a walk or whatever, you know, but it created a lot of war anxiety in me. And as soon as I realized that, I, I think I talked about that in Peg's class. As soon as I realized that it kind of went away, that this was my doing and not this other person's doing. They weren't trying to, that's the ego thing. They weren't trying to punish me. They had, didn't have me on their mind as, a, you know, as the enemy. They were simply going about their life and I was being impatient and wasting all this energy. Go on, Shannon, what? I'm just saying patience is like one of your first lessons you need to learn in life. Yeah. If you master that, then you can go for the rest of them. Okay. When is gonna, that going to happen? 
I'm going to work on it tonight. So, Kim. Yes. There are two kinds of people in this world. Oh, really? The okay. first kind walks into a crowded bar and says, here I am. The second kind walks into a crowded bar and says, there you are. That's ego and personality there. Yeah. That's nice. Did you just make that up? Oh, God, no. Oh. I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. There's three kinds of people in the world. Those who can count and those who can't. <laughs> and that's it. Thank you for sharing your practice. This was a really good one for me. Okay. I'm grateful. Well, take take care, everyone. See y'all. Thank you. Good night. Next week. Good night.